Welcome to Uninhibited, a podcast with the mission to discuss taboo, multicultural, multigenerational, and multilayered topics that matter to women. My name is Dr. Makunda Abdul-Baki. I am an Ivy League-trained OBGYN practicing medicine in rural America. I am married and raising three dynamic African-American boys. I am a mother, a career professional, a part of Generation X, and so much more. I bring to the table a true desire for social justice that informs my opinions, and my hope is that this podcast will open conversations, question beliefs, and be transformative. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Uninhibited. I'm your host, Dr. Makunda Abdul-Baki, and um, I have with me today two um, awesome women, and what we're going to talk today about is COVID-19 myths versus reality. It's something that I feel is really pressing, um, especially because, um, you know, my heart is for underserved communities. Um, I'm uh, certainly a member of uh, different underserved communities, especially with uh, being African-American and um, the way the disease is ravaging our community. I think this is as timely as it could be so that we can um, get rid of the myths, especially as states um, and municipalities are reopening and really understand what the realities are gonna be so that we can start to save our own lives. So I'm gonna let my guests introduce themselves. Shawnee, do you wanna go first? Sure. Hello, everyone. I'm Shawnee Gaylord, and I'm honored to be chatting with you all on this awesome podcast because um, I'm passionate about this as well. I work for the Virginia Department of Health, Youth Health Equity Leadership Institute, YELI for short, but I'm sharing with you all not on behalf of my professional organization, but as a passionate community member just like you, dedicated to learning and sharing to empower our future. Um, as far as credentials, I have a master's with the healthcare focus, and I'm in the final stages of completing my PhD. Thank you all so much for listening because knowledge is truly power. True, true. Okay, and Sable, can you introduce yourself? Yes, indeed. Hello, everyone. My name is Sable Kay. I am the acting director of the Office of Health Equity at the Virginia Department of Health, and I also have the honor of serving as the chair of Virginia's first health equity working group that's responding to our COVID-19 crisis here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. I'm also here, but I'm speaking as a woman of color, as a person whose family and friends have been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19, and I'm looking forward to our conversation today where we can really dispel myths and talk about what's happening in vulnerable and marginalized communities. My background is in law. I'm an attorney by training, so I like to think of things at the policy level, look at how laws and regulations can promote health and protect the well-being of individuals. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. So um, those who don't know, we did um, end up getting um, a lot of press, uh, you know, how things happen in this country. You know, things are hot for two or three days and then they're not. But so um, in a, a couple of weeks ago, it was definitely uh, talked about a lot more as far as how the disease was ravaging um, black and brown people and half the deaths in Milwaukee 
and in the Charlotte area are African-Americans, whereas African-Americans do not make up 50% of those populations. 14% of the deaths in New York City are Hispanic and 18% of Black. Trump says he wants to find the reasons to it, and I quote, what do you think some of the reasons are um, so that we can, again, dispel myths that some people may have that, you know, are, are is, is it our fault? Is it because every now and again, you'll see something on Facebook with someone at a party in Chicago? Um, is it, you know, you know, let's, let's talk about what the, the real reasons are behind these numbers. Sure. Um, just going into what, just going into that, it's, it's important when we see what is on the news, we do our research ourselves, because as we know, that was said, or it was said that it wasn't impacting us more than it said that it was. And then the one reason that I was seeing from the U.S. administration was that um, Black Americans, our health is worse than other Americans. And yes, in some sense, that's true, but it's way deeper than that. Um, and you can feel free to look up this article, John Hopkins Medicine published that yes, communities of color already had social and economical issues um, before the pandemic that increased our risk for COVID-19, but it's because our lives are different. Um, for example, if you think about living conditions, um, crowded living conditions are a difficult challenge that's the result of longstanding racial residential segregation prior um, and prior redlining policies. For example, it's difficult for 10 individuals living in a three-bedroom apartment to appropriately social distance, especially if the mom's, you know, a nurse, and then she comes home, and then there's like a sick grandmother. These are real situations of people that I know. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it just easily spreads. I know people in the news that one person got sick or the whole family got sick, right? So that's one. Then working in essential fields, I just talked about nurses. Um, a lot of people in our culture work in environmental services, trash can men, food services, transportation. Um, so we cannot work from home. That puts us in close contact with others out, and then we're at risk of bringing it back home. Um, I have several, but I don't want to talk too much. Do you guys want to add it to that? Look, or y'all want me to keep going? No, I, I, I think that you're, you're raising the right point, because what we know is that COVID-19 didn't create health inequities. What COVID-19 right. is doing is exacerbating pre-existing inequities, systems of oppression, and that have really just worsened our healthcare outcomes. We were already in a situation where black and brown individuals, people in rural communities, people who are in these essential workers and jobs did not have access to adequate health care. They were already in a situation where they were living with several of the comorbidities who that make them vulnerable to a COVID-19 infection. So it's really just understanding the way that the system and the world that COVID-19 came into and how that is just only exacerbating the inequities that already are out there in the world. And this is really an opportunity for us to turn those inequities and address them. We have to identify them when we see them, call them out when we see them, and then put resources and speak truth to power to make sure that they're addressed and that this doesn't happen again. Yeah, because it's just very interesting. A lot of people, you know, especially even Trump is kind of just like, wow, why is that? Or, you know, how did this happen? And, and it's been existing. I mean, um, you know, these disparities and inequities have been going on for a long time. And now this is just so much more blatant and so 
it's like a, a tsunami. It's just, you know, it's impact right. has been so quick. And so we don't, you know, cause there's been black men and black women disproportionately dying of heart disease and diabetes for decades. Um, right. It's just, it's just, a, you know, it's just been another number, but when this happens so quickly, um, it put it on center stage. And, um, you know, I really, there's so many ways that we're impacted that you know, people are not even really considering. So much of us are work lower rung jobs, lower jobs on the socioeconomic totem pole. Uh, for example, I was reading something in the Washington Post yesterday that um, Amazon and um, uh, just some other really big companies, Microsoft, IBM, none of their uh, higher up executives are going to be going back to work until October, January, all of, you know, at least six to eight months before they're going to set foot in a physical building. But who is now, now we're able to call all of these black and brown people essential workers so that right have this title of being essential. And every day I scratch my head about why is this person considered an essential worker? Because when usually when you think about essential worker, I think of just healthcare. Like I know that everyone within the building of the hospital and people within the community who are doctors and nurses and scrub techs and CNAs, all of those people, I consider them essential workers. But, um, you know, it turned out that Anyone involved in our food service became essential. Anyone um, involved in transportation became essential. And there's New York City has uh, the, the ranks of um, subway and bus um, uh, drivers have been decimated. Um, police officers, all of their ranks have been decimated because again, those are also all of the first responders are essential workers. And we make up so many of the people in those rungs and that's also contributes. So it's not, you know, it's not just one thing. It's not just the higher rates of hypertension. It's the higher rates of hypertension, the, you know, increased risk of crowded housing, the jobs that we occupy, those all um, play a role in the numbers. I appreciate you sharing that. And some, something that's good that I've seen come from this is as far, because a lot of us also are, have no insurance, are, are underinsured, which is huge. But I'm seeing like healthcare open up. So things are getting more lenient. So people can get some COVID-19 tests are now free in certain areas. Um, and also mental health, they're just opening up how people can get healthcare, which I think is pretty cool. Um, but I appreciate you sharing about the underlying health conditions because we don't think we think of stuff as normal. But no, yes, we have higher hypertension, higher asthma, higher diabetes, higher heart disease, lung disease, all of which those underlying causes can increase your reach of COVID-19. And a big thing that I think of with, with everything that y'all were just saying is stress and immunity. So you have a family at home, you're working, you could have lost your job, right? You have to do paperwork to get your unemployment and you don't know how real situation I had with my mom. Studies prove that stress has a psychological effect on the body's ability to defend against itself. So we just talked, again, I just mentioned income equality, discrimination, violence, institutional racism contribute to stress. So a lot of people are just stressed 
out. And I'm sure we'll talk about that later on, but that's impacting our health too. I don't think you really think about that sometimes. And that brings up a great that brings up a great point, Shani, because there's a whole concept body of literature that's growing about this concept of weathering and the way that the stress of our daily lived experiences, the adverse impact that that has on our healthcare outcomes. And of course, that's going to look adversely impact um, black and brown individuals, people who have poor ac- lack of ha- access to healthcare, who are of lower incomes, who may be in more rural communities, and all of those different layers of um, lack of access add additional stress, which studies have shown make you more susceptible to um, becoming sick and having certain comorbidities, even outside of the COVID times. Yeah, exactly. There's definitely a whole body of research um, concerning weathering. I'd spent um, a decent amount of time looking at it um, in regards to maternal mortality, but it affects basically everything. It, it it explains and just to understand to help someone who may not have heard the word before it it is literally that a uh if you look at the cell shape and the cell size and 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 cell death and all of those things that are going on in our body the whole time if you are able to look at those on a cellular level a 20 year old black woman may actually look more like a 40 year old woman, you know, because of those lived experiences, because of uh, stress, because of the, um, you know, you know, food deserts that people live in, um, this, uh, the, the different economic hardships that that 20 year old may have already faced. So there is definitely Um, This concept of weathering is just showing that on a cellular DNA microscopic level, we are aging faster than we should. And so that also is contributing to, you know, to what looks like early death. Um, You know, we've lost some people just recently um, that have just been like, you know, Andre Harrell, he died recently and he's in his 50s, very successful black man. John Singleton died in his 50s. Um, both of them, I think the final report is saying that it was congestive heart failure, which is an end result of hypertension, chronic hypertension. And so um, even though this may seem like it's off topic, it's not because it's really saying that um, because of the 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 culmination of institutional racism, it wears on our body. Um, do either of you want to talk a little bit about institutional racism, what it is and, and what it means to us in a, in a daily way? Sure, I can. And I, you'll notice I always have definitions because I never assume people know. I don't know most words because I'm about to have my PhD, but I come from <laughs> nothing. Um, and I, I'm always learning every single day. So I pre- appreciate you all for always telling me about different words. But when I looked up institutional racism, the definition says the systematic distribution of resources, power and opportunity in our society to benefit people who are white and the exclusion of people of color. color. Present day racism was built on a long history of racially um, distributed resources. And actually, if I could ask you guys to help me understand as well, can you give me an example of institutional racism? 
Um, gosh. Like an example of institutional racism would be like access to housing. So a lot of people, when they um, are applying for an apartment, like the first thing you have to do is like you get your credit score. And a lot of, depending on the kind of household that you grew up in, where you grew up, your neighborhood, they're going to look at all these different factors when you're applying for an apartment. And there are certain characteristics. There's this whole concept, for example, called redlining. So there was, um, you know, oh, back in the day, um, the government instituted this policy, um, the federal government, where they would literally draw red lines on a map around what they would call economically disadvantaged communities, and they were primarily black and brown communities, and they, banks were basically instructed, don't loan money to, for people to buy homes in this area. And that meant that the, one of the greatest ways that people develop wealth, which is through the ownership of homes, it created a generational cascade because people weren't able to buy homes. And now if you look um, even where I live right now in Richmond, if you overlay those redlining maps where people weren't allowed to um, buy homes and establish routes and you overlay that with asthma rates, you overlay that with hypertension or cardiovascular concerns, you see higher rates in those areas where people were denied access to wealth building and the ability to provide for themselves and their family. And that's not something that happened on a one-to-one -one level. That was something that happened at a larger systemic level at like, it was a legal, it was a policy and something that was over, that was upheld over time. I'll give you another example. Um, different sociology uh, work that I've looked at shows that people uh, relate better to people who look like them. And so um, one example would be that when you have um, a system where all of the judges have always been white, all of the prosecutors, all the lawyers have always been white, it then makes it so much easier that when there is a white defendant or, um, you know, that comes before them, they can be like, oh, wow, that's, you know, he reminds me of Tommy, my next door neighbor, or, you know, whereas when the black or Latino defendant comes before them, they are immediately seen as other. And so, um, and this plays out not just in legal proceedings, this plays out in education, Teachers, um, you know, time and time again, have been shown that um, a study that was done at Yale looking at preschool uh, teachers, um, they basically had, um, they told the teachers that you're going to look in, you know, have one of those uh, double-sided mirrors. You're going to look in on a classroom and um, someone's doing something wrong. And we want, you know, we want you to identify what the person is that's doing something wrong. And then we'll talk to you after you do 10 minutes of observation. They were able to track where the where the uh, teacher's eyes went to. And nine times out of 10, the white teachers, be they male or female, gravitated to the African-American boys specifically wow. as far as if you have planted a seed in my head that I need to look for someone who's doing something wrong, even a five-year-old black boy, I'm going to be looking in that direction. 
And wow. um, of course, there wasn't anything wrong going on. They were really just testing how deep this goes and how early it starts. So that child has already been beset, you know, by a system that makes him feel and uh, tells him that there's something wrong about his very existence. And that just uh, continues to um, just bear the fruit. It continues to bear fruit, basically. And so, and it happens also in healthcare. It also, you know, not just education, legal, but it also happens in healthcare. As I expressed um, last night, um, the COVID-19, by the mere fact that it's a disease where when you get it, you are alone because when you have to go to the hospital, we are not allowing anyone else in the hospital. The only right. time anyone is getting in the hospital is in my profession. When I'm delivering a baby, the person, the, the mom is allowed one support person for the entire 24 to 48 hours that she's there. And then if there is a pediatric, like a a six-year-old and that comes in for whatever reason, they will have a parent or guardian with them. And then if someone is end of life, they will try to get like a family member in, but those are only the situations. So now if we've already told you that institutional racism exists, then this is the worst, you know, disease possible because we can't even have an eye on it. Like I'm very much, I tell my patients to, advocate for themselves in their visits with doctors. Um, I tell them to bring family members so that they have another set of ears and, um, you know, so that people see that they are part of a community um, and that there is someone watching them. And I, you know, I tell them that, but this, in this situation, all of that goes out the window. And so, um, you know, it's been proven time and time again that, um, Blacks get less health care even when they present for health care. And that right. also is institutional racism because we tend to do more um, and acclimate better with people that look like us. I agree. And that leads me to think about um, in Danville, a lot of people, we'll talk about the reading levels. A lot of people read, was it like fourth or sixth grade or something like that? And mm -hmm. I'll be in meetings and people are like, well, this lady, she's mean or she's rude. And it's like, she doesn't understand the paperwork. So if I'm thinking about someone that's sick and elderly in the hospital by themselves, of course they can, you know, like get overlooked. Well, this is, so this is kind of like triggering me a little bit, this conversation. But it also leads me to think about, um, Sable K mentioned the zip codes. In Danville, a study was done, like, a word that comes to mind is, like, social determinants of health, which is, as we've been talking about, your housing affects, like, how long you live, food, your job, and your zip code. So, like, in Danville, zip codes, like, right next to each other, it was a 20-year difference in lifespan, which then wow. leads me to think about red light. Yeah, this is all published in the Health Collaborative mm -hmm. um, report. A 20-year age gap difference. And then... Um, so that makes me think about richer and poorer. The gap is being different. And something I was doing research that struck me is that the median income of white households is almost twice that of African-American households. It's something we talk about, you know, but to see it, the study being done really, I think just threw me off as well. And even talking about food insecurity, um, 
food is there. We're like, yeah, we have corner stores. They have bread and stuff like that. But a honey bun is different from getting fresh vegetables from a market. Um, so just stuff like that has really been throwing me off. Youth incarceration, talking about data, I, it was like um, a study was, well, not a study, but facts. It was like 60% of non-people of color were convicted for stuff, but 60% of people that were color were actually in jail. So it's like other people are getting convicted, but we're in jail. Why is that? Like that kind of threw me off too. And then um, so it's not funny, but it's just it just it's I just have to laugh that it's just unreal. But that's and the last thing. Go back to the like um, institutional racism pieces yeah. and those um, systemic those systems of oppression where unreal. bias is built in to every aspect of our lives. And one of the things that we have to do very intentionally. I think it's incumbent like upon each and every one of us is to when we acknowledge and we know there are systems of oppression to do what we can um, with whomever we can to dismantle those systems. So whether it's um, trying to make sure that teachers treat kids fairly when they're in school and not call the police on a six-year-old for having a temper tantrum, or if it's um, just really kind of understanding and bringing like truth to bear about like the impact that this, like where you live, how much that impacts your outcome, your entire lived experience is based upon the zip code where you grew up. And I grew up, um, I know that you mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, I grew up in Milwaukee and I know that it's common across the country, but I noticed like third grade reading tests in Wisconsin, that's how they decided how many jails that they needed to build. So depending on wow. how well, or how poorly um, students did, um, especially like black and brown students, they're like, okay, this is how many jails we need to get prepared. These are how many beds that we need to prepare to fill in the next generation. And just to know that that's how the system is set up, we need to do what we can to like acknowledge those things and identify those things and shut them down. So let's talk about some conspiracy theories because um, I think initially uh, the way the disease was presented, um, and um, and my son had mentioned this among some of his college uh, friends, was that uh, blacks can't get it. Um, you know that because the initial people that were uh, profiled were, you know, white celebrities or white uh, businessmen. Um, you know there was the I think a lawyer or businessman from Rye, New York, that ended up having the whole uh, city of Rye get shut down. Um, and he, they kind of was calling him patient zero in the New York area. Um, and then, you know, the, a lot of it was talking about Wuhan province and China and, you know, those South Korea and all those areas. And those aren't places per se that we flock to. So there was that initial feeling like, okay, this is, this is something we can't get. Um, but I think now we certainly know that not only is it something that we can get, it's something that we're disproportionately dying from because once we get it um, due to a, you know, all of the issues that we've talked about, the institutional racism, which leads to the poor health outcomes, the poor quality of education, the, the poor hospitals that are are in our communities. Like I, I want to share with you guys that the way COVID-19 has uh, touched me personally was that um, a close uh, family member of mine um, came down with a lot of the symptoms. And so she presented to um, 
a hospital in New York and based on where she was living. Um, and I think, you know, black people, we, for the most part, we know where the better stuff is. We know where the better shopping area is. We know where the better hospitals are. Um, and we know for the most part that they're not in our communities. And so we're used to traveling outside of our communities to get the better services. So, but she got short of breath acutely. So she called the ambulance and the ambulance of course took her to her closest hospital, which um, when we found out, the very first thing we found out is that even though they recognized that she was hypoxic and low on oxygen, they put her in a room that had no call bell. Uh, mm. I'm just like, you can't be in a room where if something happens to you, there would be no way of uh, signaling to anyone that you were sick. Like when you're hypoxic and you pass out, you can't use your cell phone to call the nurse's station. Mm -hmm. And it was just one thing after the next because of this poor hospital with poor outcomes and uh, poor resources. As much as I appreciate Governor Cuomo and what, you know, what he does with those um, uh, uh, conferences that he has, something really needs to be looked at as far as equaling the playing field because it should not be that there should be such a disparate um, allocation of resources between, um, you know, a, a Columbia or Cornell or a Mount Sinai hospital in New York City versus a um, hospital in the Bronx or something because there was just, at every turn, there was disparity. They didn't have the point of care testing. Whereas I know from my colleagues in New York City that the point of care testing is in Manhattan. Why is it not in Brooklyn? Like, mm -hmm. you know, if you're going to have point of care testing, meaning that we could do a swab and you would get your results for the next 15 to 30 minutes, as opposed to waiting uh, three to four days, which, you know, could, could impact your health. So there's just like so much that needs to be done to um, just level the playing field. So, you know, what do you have to say about um, some of the conspiracy theories that you've heard regarding the virus? There's so I think many. that for the most part, they've been based, like everyone's kind of perception is their reality, right? And I think that there's just like a tinge of, especially when we were first getting the reports, I know that there was like a tinge of truth in terms of it wasn't something that was directly impacting or didn't appear to be directly impacting um, black and brown and vulnerable individuals, but it also just underscored um, a big piece in terms of data collection, how we are underrepresented in data collection. And there are lots of states, even to this day, that aren't collecting race and ethnic information. So they're operating at a place of not knowing, which only goes, which up to the point where data started being collected and released about race, just reinforced the idea that, oh, this is something that's not going to impact um, black and brown people. I have a question about that, though, because as a physician with my own practice, we collect racial data, like, right up at the front, like, it's it's somewhere along with your marital status um, and your religion and your race. Um, so how is it possible that, um, 
they are able to opt out of race. Like, I, I mean, and I don't know if you, you know this, but yeah, I can was, speak to uh, it a little bit. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I, that's been what I've heard and what's been my experience um, um, in this, what, what, I, what I've been exposed to is not all physicians do their due diligence and fill out each one of those demographic pieces. That's part one. And part two, uh, a lot of the epidemiology offices have been more concerned about getting who's positive, who's, who's negative, who's a person under um, investigation, and they're more so looking at the demographically neutral component of the data that's collected and not necessarily doing that data entry on those demographic pieces. So there's a lot more work that's being done on the back end to try to fix and add demographic data through contact tracing or through vital statistic searches, but the data either just isn't being collected by the front end provider or it's not, there's some kind of disconnect during the data entry once it gets to um, the health department. And you know, that's a simple solution because that's what our electronic health records is. We can't go on past it. Like if we don't ask you those questions, we can't register you. So it's important. Right. A lot of people are putting like prefer not to disclose or unknown. Oh. Like so they're still taking the time to fill the box. Mm-hmm. So, that, so that's an <laughs> I, education I piece right, right there. Thing to do. I'm, I just, I also posed a question when I was on a call with some physicians, like, come on, y'all, like, why can't we do this? You know, this data is important. And that was some of the feedback that I received. Yeah, that's ridiculous. So, overwhelmed. It's, so their system is like mine, because really, we can't register you unless we get all, like, we fill in all the boxes. So yes, of course, they're they're like for religion, not everyone is going to be like, you know, I'm Baptist or whatever. And so we do always have the prefer not to say choice, but that, that in and of itself is interesting that, what do you think that's about? Like why, why I don't collect the data because I'm going to be doing some epidemiological studies on it. It's just what's, you know, it's, it's part of, um, the questions that that are part of the collection just to register but i wonder what i mean just and this is just uh not exactly on topic but just what do you think is behind not uh acknowledging someone's race i think a part of it goes to like the value proposition and in terms of what that individual provider or the health system that that provider is operating in finds important. I know that a lot of medical systems prioritize efficiency and try to make sure that people get through and see as many people as possible so that they can get cash in and process as many payments as possible. So whatever they can do, they take a shortcut because the value hasn't been placed on the need for um, talking about race or collecting demographic data. I think that also kind of feeds into this larger narrative about um, some people who desire to move into this post-racial or like race neutral world where all of a sudden race doesn't matter. And that could also be a part of it as well. Um, That's what I'm thinking. Shawnee, what what, do you have any um, information on why? Because even for the state of Virginia, I've noticed that there's a large group of unknown. And so, and, you know, for the most part, um, there's not that many people who are 
an unknown race. I but, disagree with what you guys are saying that, and I don't know how to say this without just saying it like this. There's a lot of stuff that could be changed when we're talking about this one thing with race. There's a lot of things we could say, well, if it's an easy fix, if we just did this, right? But there's not a lot of consistency in, you know, all the different, not just in Virginia, but everywhere, different health districts focus as their own entities. This state is different from this state. So again, that I kind of like goes into like policy level. If it was a requirement versus just being like optional, I just feel like everybody's doing their own thing. So not just with the race thing, but if we think about other policies of how organizations are doing different stuff, it's just kind of all over the place. So yeah, I don't even like, who will we even bring that to? That's like top level. Because so I, mean, I was reading it. So that speaks to kind of the role and the way like kind of the fundamental differences in how people see the role of government though. Is it the role of government to provide like step-by-step -step instructions, like like with a flow chart, if this, then you do that, or is it more right. the role of government to provide guidelines and you based on whatever your unique circumstances in this part of Virginia or this part of that state um, to tailor it to whatever your needs are. And I think that there are pro and con arguments um, that could go either way, but at this point, the way that we're operating is obviously hurting um, black and brown folks in other vulnerable communities and there's something that needs to be done definitely definitely it's kind of like also if you don't collect the racial data then you don't have to deal with it you know let's just call a spade a spade like let's just lay it out there like if you don't do your due diligence um then it's just going to be that, you know, 150,000 Americans died or, or 200,000 Americans died at the end of all of this. And then, then we move on to the next thing. And that's, that's really what my biggest fear is that um, this becomes some talking points, but then we move on to the next thing. But let's, let's delve into uh, some others um, myths like, uh, just because the government says it's safe to go out, is it safe to go out? That's a good one. I feel like the answer is honestly no. When we talk about this, I think about the game Telephone, where it's like, yeah, everything is great, just keep it, but it's, it's, there's still safety precautions, the social distancing, because it's not like when it opens up, everything is safe. You know, the, it's still spreading, which I don't think people are realizing, just because they say it's open, everything is fine. What are you guys' interpretations on that? I mean, I think if you don't have to look farther, farther than what's happening um, in the news. Like there are states that are we like where there's governor, governmental leadership that's saying, hey, um, we're going to do these phased reopenings, but then you have specific localities are like, you know what, our data is just not suggesting that we're ready to do this right now. And I definitely think that, um, it's an individual's decision to determine whether or not um, they believe that it's safe. But I also believe like the CDC put out the guidelines in terms of when, what things we should look for to reopen the government. And from what I could tell, all of our phase reopening plans aren't following the guidelines from the CDC in terms of the number of tests 
right now we have increased numbers of tests happening in the Commonwealth. Um, we haven't seen a decrease yet. Um, there are concerns about um, still having access to cleaning supplies and not everybody can afford masks or knows where to get them or has the opportunity to make their own. So I think there are just kind of these structural pieces that should need to be thought about ahead of reopening to make sure that we're reopening in the safest way possible. Yeah, and I appreciate your um, mayor actually came out and said Richmond is not ready. And he, he laid it plain. He was like, Richmond is blacker and browner than most of the areas <laughs> that are moving forward with reopening. And I'm here to tell you, we are not there yet. Um, and, um, and you know, I, you know, he has to look at his numbers. And I think people um, in their own localities and and understanding what they need to do for their own health. Um, because I had a, a lively discussion about a church and and the the short takeaway is as of, you know, with phase one churches are reopened, but that's not what the governor said. And um, the governor's press release is actually four pages of, of a single space document that really defines how the churches can be open. And I would think there would be few and far between churches that really could be open and meet all of the requirements that the governor laid out. And so you can have a takeaway message that sounds like a nice quick soundbite. And then the reality is that the, the you know, as they say, the devil is in the details. There's actually a four page uh, document from Governor Northam detailing his recommendations on what it would take to make church services safer um, because right. no one can really go out on a limb and say safe because safe the, the only thing that's really safe is staying in your house you know that's right. that's the only um safe uh place um but outside of that as far as making it safer what um what have you heard about whether this virus can be spread through 5G networks. Have you heard anything about that? Yes, I mean, the myths are, are just, I have so many myths I could think of, but the answer <laughs> to that was no. It says viruses cannot travel onto radio waves and mobile networks. Um, it's spreading in countries that don't even have 5G networks. It's spread through respiratory droplets, like when a person sneezes, coughs, or speaks, or if you touch the surface. So I think that, but if we think about it, it's always been stuff with like mobile stuff. If you think mm -hmm. about like old myths back in the day, like, you know, don't take a shower if it's like thundering or radiation, they're different stuff. So I think it's, there's just myths about all types of stuff. Did you guys hear about that too? Yeah, I've heard I about did, that. I did. What have you heard about um, like extreme heat or using bleach or, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that yeah. Um, no one in their right mind really took the president at his word, but um, you would hope so. But were, then there were the people. Actually, you know what? Let me take that back. There were people who did because the New York Poison Control actually had a bump in uh, poisonous ingestion of bleach after his uh, press conference. So I can't I can't vouch that those people were in their right mind, but there were people who listened to him and actually thought that there was some way to purify themselves or eradicate the virus by ingesting bleach. That's so real because I thought the same thing that it wasn't real. 
and somebody that I know straight up tried to test it on me, an adult. And I was like, stop playing. <laughs> and but we have to realize, like we said, people's reading levels, their thought levels, again, telephone, they see something and take it for fact, you know. So it's been really challenging for me, for people that I love and care about to hear these myths and take it as fact. It's, it's, it's really challenging, especially working in the health department, like, wow, come on, guys. But it's just showing how much this is why I love this podcast, that we're breaking these myths and we're sharing with people facts that we know from credible resources. So just again, for whoever needs to hear it, that does not work. <laughs> Bleach and disinfectants will not cure. Seriously. They're good to clean <laughs> exactly. your surfaces with. Yes, yeah, definitely. Exactly. <laughs> not not, not to go inside your body. <laughs> right. I think that we also need to talk about um, the way there, I know that COVID disproportionately impacts older individuals, but there's mm -hmm. also kind of this like invincibility that young people have. And I think that we need to talk about how um, young people also need to take precautions and protect themselves against COVID um, because even though we're not getting sick, it's possible for us to carry the virus. And even more, um, I was reading um, some newspaper articles earlier today, and apparently COVID is showing up in different ways in children. And yes. we just have to be very cognizant that it's not just, oh, grandma, grandpa that I need to be aware of. We have to take care of ourselves and we have to take care of the spectrum of ages because it's impacting, it can impact all of us. And it looks like it's impacting the different age groups in different ways. Yeah, definitely underline that because even that myth of children not getting it has um, even been uh, profligated by uh, us in the medical community because we just weren't seeing it. But um, now we're seeing it. It began again since it began in China. They first had some cases of children with high fevers, a red colored rash, and basically a systemic inflammatory uh, body response um, to the virus, and um, it didn't exactly look like COVID-19 uh, for the adults, you know, with the characteristic cough, um, et cetera, but um, it definitely, now we've had, I think they've had at least 10 deaths in New York uh, due to it, and then um, throughout different states, so now even within the medical community, we're warning each other, like, you know, what, what we thought was, uh, was that, that it was a certain way and it's not. And then the other piece of really understanding that you can feel fine, literally, um, the press, uh, secretary for, uh, vice president Pence, uh, Miller, she got tested one day it was negative and then the next day she was positive. Um, and that's just the way it is, right? You, you can be an asymptomatic carrier. So uh, because of her, and then they ended up having multiple people that were White House staffers that are now COVID positive. So it's very easy to spread because it really, again, underlying how does it spread? It spreads through respiratory droplets. So anytime you cough, sneeze, sing, talk, anything that's going to um, produce, uh, you know, a little bit of spit, a little bit of fluid, a little bit of just droplets coming out of your mouth or nose, 
is going to be able to spread the disease and you can feel fine and still spread the disease. So that's, that's another um, issue as far as, you know, making it plain. Um, any other myths that you want to um, kind of address? I think that there are uh, concerns about face masks. Like, I think that people are not understanding necessarily the difference between like the N95 mask versus like some cloth or like a surgical mask that they may be able to get if they're lucky enough to get them and find them at any of the stores in their neighborhood. But people not understanding the role of the mask and whether or not you can still transmit. I've heard people having and asking questions about that. So, I mean, the mask just basically helps, like, as I said, with the coughing, sneezing, laughing, talking, again, just, just regular old talking, you are um, producing respiratory droplets. And so that's where the mask helps because if I keep my mask on and you keep your mask on, then all we're being exposed to is what, what is in our own body. But when we start to take off our mask and um, walk around without our mask, so that's where it becomes a problem. And so even as we go into phase one, where some restrictions are being let down, it's still going to be strongly recommended, the social distancing of six to 10 feet, wearing masks out in public, and um, frequent hand washing and sanit you know, hand sanitizer to try to uh, kill the virus, because the virus actually can be easily killed with soap and water. Um, and then with, I think, anything that's 70% alcohol or greater, um, that can uh, help it also. So do you guys think are enough of us getting tested? What's been your personal experiences with the um, availability of testing in your own communities or just what you know about what, um, what it's looking like? Personally, I think no. Just again, coming from the demographic I come from, um, I feel like people are being pushed away from being tested, which I know sounds crazy, but I had a real situation with my grandma who's in New Jersey while they were literally telling her no. And I was like, I know the symptoms. So I was calling around, calling around, calling around and made it happen. So I feel like vulnerable populations, we don't use our voice. Um, so I just feel like we have to advocate just for ourselves, honestly, um, because I, just data shows as well that we don't get tested as much as other people, whether it's not available um, or people are, you know, telling or us no. Or it's not recommended so for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. What do you mean by not recommended I want to do a shout out because, um, so for in Virginia right now, in order for you to get a prescription, I mean, in order for you to get a test, basically you have to get a prescription written by a doctor, by a primary care physician, unless you show up in like an emergency room and you are presenting um, very severe symptoms that are COVID related. So even in the Commonwealth, like it's limited to, you have to be visibly symptomatic in order for you to be recommended to get a test. And that's very different from, I think I, I mentioned earlier, my parents still live in Wisconsin. And when I called my mother for Mother's Day, she called to let me know, hey, um, the state this is opened up. So now all black and brown individuals, all people in rural communities, Native American, Latino, Latinx individuals, they're all being offered testing, whether they're symptomatic or not, 
just because the state has realized and their data has shown that COVID-19 is disproportionately impacting certain communities. So now instead of you having to get the prescription as is the Virginia system right now, anybody who's from one of those vulnerable communities or who lives in the zip code or is living in an area with a high concentration of the virus, they can get tested just as a matter of course, no questions asked. Um, Right. versus kind of the gatekeeper method that we have here. Yeah, that's what we really need. And that's what I was advocating for in our own community. But again, it's because it's a limited resource. And so we don't have as much test as we should. But, you know, I was looking, I think more and more places are going to be doing their own thing because we don't have a coordinated response from the federal government. And so um, on the same day that uh, the the Cal State system announced that they were not going to have pretty much any in-person classes for the fall semester was the same day that University of Arizona said they are going to open up in the fall. And what they're going to do is they're going to be uh, developing their own tests, running their own tests, doing their own antibody testing, devoting mm -hmm. one dormitory for sick and convalescent, and they're, they're gonna keep it rolling. And those, you know, no one, no one really knows what's gonna be the best approach, but you know, now the University of Arizona is developing their own tests and doing their own standards and creating their own protocols. And that, that's a, you know, it, it's a scary situation, honestly, because um, you don't know how good the test is that you're getting. Um, you, you, you know, when, when there's not a coordinated effort and a coordinated response, you know who suffers the most there because, you know, we, we, we remain at the bottom of the totem pole on so many levels. And so if it's not gonna be a coordinated effort, um, then it, it harkens back to the years of segregation and separate but equal, um, you know, and which was really separate and unequal. And so that's, that's kind of what my fear is with different universities, different institutions just kind of doing their own thing. But um, I agree, I think testing should be much more liberal um, as far as just, um, just me and another colleague were talking about that we're going to go and get antibody testing just to know, like, do we have it? And we can do that because we're doctors. I have a phlebotomist in my office and I can, can take that type of control of my healthcare. But if I wasn't, um, right. I don't know. I, I know that there would be different, different hurdles at, at the very least, there would be the hurdle of having a doctor write me a prescription and whether or not, I was going to be able to afford to go see the doctor in order to get the prescription for for the test. Something great that I have seen with this though is I have seen some great collaborations. I just saw online today that Mecklenburg and Halifax, um, their health organization is doing free testing. So I just, even though it's harder, some of us just like, let's not be too proud if we do see free testing don't be afraid of that just like if you see free food and you know you need it go get it you know what i mean especially if it's on the same level that other people you know have easier access because i think some of us shy away from oh if it's free it's not good enough but if a reputable organization is saying hey we're doing this let's put our pride aside and our ego and get it done 
Have you guys experienced that too? Or is it just like me from? <laughs> no, from I think that the community is really showing up and showing out for their fellow residents. And I think that that's actually kind of doing like a grassroots type movement to encourage movement at like the city level, the county level, and the state level. And I think it's in response to a lot of that community efforts and mobilization actions that's prompting governmental agencies to engage community and letting also letting the data kind of speak to where they are. And now that more testing is becoming available, it's all about like targeting those and allocating those resources where they're needed the most. And I think that now it's like a light bulb moment. Um, people are ready to make it happen. And that's exactly, you know, not to beat, beat the drum there, but that's exactly why you do need racial data because, you know, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm a scientist by training. And so you want as much data points because getting your data points means that you can allocate resources. And so if you have an area that basically has 0% uh, prevalence of a disease, they don't need the money. They don't need the testing kits. They don't need the stuff. You need to go where the prevalence is high. And if you don't um, look at, you know, what's your zip code? Where do you live? And what's your age? And where do you work? Oh, you work at that nursing home or, oh, you work at Walmart or, you know, knowing those demographics helps you understand how to target uh, limited resources. Because at the end of the day, it's always limited. There's, you know, there's not, we're always uh, going to have, you know, to some degree limited resources and it, it, to use them to the maximum capacity requires knowing your audience. So um, just, uh, you know, leading towards wrapping up. So, you know, different communities, especially um, are beginning to open up. Um, you know, Georgia has already opened up, South Carolina has opened up, our state of Virginia is um, going through towards phase one now. Um, what should our community do um, now that places are uh, going back to opening up for business? I would definitely, going back to the get tested thing, because going back into the mist, obviously the, the hold your breath for 10 second things, more times than I can count, and I'm afraid somebody's gonna pass out because that <laughs> is dangerous. Um, so definitely just go and get tested. Um, the simple stuff, like, and I loved hearing you say, as a physician, washing your hands, how powerful that is. Because again, seeing it on TV and hearing an actual professional say that is powerful to me. And also for me, I would just say, don't party and turn up, excuse my language, but like it's over. We still have to follow these um, precautions. Yeah, I, I definitely um, agree. Um, so what do you see as some special considerations when we do get a vaccine? Do you foresee any special issues within our community? I'd love to get you guys' input on this, but I feel like would everybody, I'm, I'm nervous that people won't get it if it is effective, because I do understand it takes anywhere from a year, 10 years, 15 years for a vaccine to be fully tested and made sure it's good. Um, but I know we already have vaccines such as HPV that helps prevent, you know, cervical cancers and flu shots. And people are like, no, it doesn't work for us because we'll go back to that myth of it doesn't affect black people or if it's hot, I'm not going to get it. So it's really marketing and making sure under people, under, people understand like that it's effective. 
what do you think um, as far as um, what special, um, especially with you sitting on the, the task force for uh, equity, what do you think, Sable, that may present some special considerations for the African-American community when a vaccine is available? I think that it's going to be really important for us to um, wait to to follow the data. I think that I think that people are going to be so excited to like jump onto a vaccine, and I think that even now people are taking like every glimmer of hope of something like. Um, but I think that we need to be measured, and I think that. So I think it's a, it's a two-part thing. I think that the African-American community has a really difficult, um, really difficult reaction and response to um, medical interventions. There have been forced sterilizations in our past. There's Tuskegee in our past. There's mm -hmm. Henrietta Lacks in our past. Yes. And I think that we honestly have to name that and deal with that generational trauma, and but also see the promise. and to the extent that, you know, these are peer reviewed, not like single, um, single tests. Like once we have something that's approved and it's gone through all of the steps, I think that as a community, we shouldn't be late on the, we should jump on and make sure that we take advantage of the resource because we historically have not done that. And hopefully this would be an opportunity for us to go and mark our, work ourselves up to wellness, but we have to kind of walk both of those lines. On the one hand, being cautiously optimistic, but also dealing with our generational trauma. I don't want us to miss out on a great opportunity when it does arise, um, just because we haven't dealt with the stress of our past. That's, 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 that says a lot right there, because yeah, it's that people need to understand it's not, um, it's not for lack of, uh, you know, not believing scientific research. It's it's the facts around uh, Tuskegee, the facts around uh, the multiple medical studies that show, um, you know, how we've been experimented on. Um, mm. The facts around, um, even at the beginning, um, someone said, oh gosh, I can't remember, but early on, someone who was doing vaccine development said that they would trial it first in Africa. So wow. we, you know, we have often been seen as guinea pigs and we internalize that. And so the last thing we want is to, to run out and be anyone's guinea pig, but it's a double-edged sword because I was thinking about the fact that there's not going to be too many of us that are going to be in the trials, right? Can mm. One person that you know of that's going to volunteer for a COVID-19 trial vaccine. I can't, That's true. I'm, I'm a medical doctor and I, I can't think of any of my uh, friends and colleagues that would say, you know, pick me. I'm, I, I want to, uh, you know, I want to be the first to get this vaccine. I, I myself am going to be watchfully waiting and definitely reading the data before I um, get it. Um, and so the, that's the same issue around the flu vaccine, um, the same issue around the, um, the Gardasil and uh, HPV vaccine, um, which um, 
we don't have, you know, a lot of uh, trust in the healthcare system and in our government. And so that's gonna, that's gonna be a hurdle and it's probably gonna need a, a campaign that has people that we do trust um, saying that they support it and that they're getting their shot, you know, having someone like Oprah or Tyler Perry or some other, or Michelle Obama, someone that we as a community see as um, important and trustworthy. And if they get behind it, then I think the, the rest of us may be able to get behind it. But I, I'm not predicting that there's going to be an overwhelming surge to get it just because of what the history has been. Now, um, what I do want to hear from before we end is what are, you know, we've talked about some major issues around institutional racism. Where do we go now as far as I want this to be an opportunity and not just a oh my gosh, Blacks are dying of this and now we've moved on to something else. How do we press the buttons? How do we make this a watershed moment where we really look at the systems that are in place? Um, uh, you know, I was speaking with um, someone who's running for the uh, congressional, the fifth congressional district, um, Dr. Webb, and he was talking about how much money UVA is losing um, because of no elective surgeries and the decreased volume of patients. And it's like, well, if we had a different government, it seems like we need to um, have a, a carrot and stick approach. If racial equity is really important to us, then this is the time to be like, you want this money? Well, then you need to set up these types of systems. What do you think? Absolutely. That's why um, the we've been very the and part of like my day piece is we've been working very intentionally with the different agencies across the Commonwealth to make sure that vulnerable and marginalized communities like there's this big pocket of money out of the CARES Act right now, and what we're trying to do is make sure that as many of those resources can be funneled and funneled into programs and opportunities and resources that are going to support people who have been marginalized, who are, who are now in a situation that they weren't in before because they've lost their jobs or their partner or somebody in their household has lost their job, like making sure that those individuals are taken care of. Like now is the time we, for all this talk about the desire for diversity, equity, and inclusion for us to put our resources where we say our passion is and do what we can to promote wellness and protect people. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And yes, rural Virginia, definitely we have some of our challenges, but a beautiful thing is that it's a tight-knit community. So we were talking about advocating before. If you have an idea, this is the time, like Sable K mentioned, to talk with your government officials, partner with different organizations. I'm honored that as part of what I do, I can literally call people up, hey, let's partner on this initiative and we'll get food to people or we can have um, counseling, you know, with students. So it's, this is really a great time. Even meetings, there was a student from Danville who, um, she was valedictorian, I believe going to Harvard and she wrote a TV show. And I think now she's gonna be, you know, cause we can do everything on Zoom now. Yeah. So the world is really ours. Even the biggest thing for me is 
reaching people, um, resume writing, you know, reach out to people and help because you were busy before, but now you're in the house, reach out and you can do a lot of stuff virtually. So let's just use what we have and, and help each other. So when this is done, we're better positioned than we were before. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of in certain ways excited about the times, but I do, you know, still mental, I just, the words that come to mind for me is just mental health. Um, if you can focus, you know, on yourself and just be better because this will pass eventually. And, and like I said, let's position ourselves to be better than we were before at all possible. That's a great way to end. Let's, let's focus on positioning ourselves to be better. That's, that right there is the capstone. Thank you so much for joining us tonight and having this discussion. Um, hopefully it raises some awareness and dispels uh, the myths that are out there and um, moves us towards being better. Thank you ladies and have a good night. Thank good you. Night. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this latest episode of Uninhibited. You can find more episodes to download at iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. You can also continue the conversation at uninhibited.community on Facebook, where you can like us and share. And you can continue chatting on Instagram at uninhibited.podcast. Special shout out to Trap Quilo for the beats.